please rise as you are able and receive this reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. And I want to invite all of us that are gathered from all the places we are to pray together. Oh God, you are about the work of tearing down walls, of helping to make a way for people to live together in peace, to remove every obstacle to sweet community, and we give you thanks. In this moment of reflection and meditation on your holy and living word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable to you. For you, O oh God, are our strength, you are our hope and our life, you're our salvation, amen. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my beloved, my beloved child, listen to him. In scripture, clouds show up a lot as a sign and symbol of the mystery and the presence of God. God is speaking a direct message to the disciples who are there with Jesus. Listen. And I wonder, what is the message that God is wanting the disciples 
to receive? I think part of the answer can be found as we look back a little bit in the story to some things that transpired before they got up the mountain. It was a moment when Jesus was traveling with his disciples on a journey in a boat, and Jesus overheard the disciples worrying about the fact that they had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf for the whole journey. And Jesus' response to this was was this, and I'm quoting. If I can find the quote. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and the seven loaves for the 4,000, How many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And the disciples knew the answer to those questions. They gave Jesus the answer to those questions, but they still clearly did not perceive or understand the point. Namely, that they were themselves empowered by God's grace to accomplish seemingly impossible things. They didn't get it. And then, six days prior to the hike up the mountain, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be rejected, that he was going to be killed, and then three days later to rise again. And Peter did not want to hear that. And Jesus, in response, said, Peter, you are focused on human things, not divine things. And then Jesus goes on to speak to the disciples and the larger crowd about about what a divine thing looks like. And it was this, deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel, because that, that giving of yourself, that self-giving, self-service, that is the only way to save your life, to find your life, to keep your life, to live your life. The disciples clearly continue to miss this point on the other side of the mountain we read about today because the next two times that Jesus brings up this point about his dying and his rising and about the disciples' call to humble service, the first time he mentions that again, the disciples break into a rousing game of who's the greatest? And then the second time Jesus mentions this, the second time they begin to jockey for positions of power in the new corporation that Jesus is gonna set up when he becomes king. They wanted a good job in the new gig. They were not listening to Jesus. They didn't understand their view from the mountaintop given voice by Peter, was of the peak of the dazzling, terrifying vision, and perhaps after they got over the initial fear, perhaps an impulse to want to rub shoulders with the greats of the tradition who had shown up with Jesus. 
Because Jesus clearly had an in with people like Moses and Elijah, and now they were in Jesus' inner circle, and so they got to rub shoulders with those people too. And I can just imagine it up on the mountain. They whip out their phone. They're like, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, let's get a selfie. Their view from the mountaintop seems focused on just that moment, and those people. They didn't know what to do with it, but they wanted to stay. They're at the heights of power. But I wonder what Jesus' view was. He had gone up to pray. He had gone up to spend time with God. And in that space of prayer, he was visited in some kind of way by the wisdom of the prophetic tradition, Elijah, and by the law, Moses. In Mark, we're not told what they discuss, but at this point in the story, we're only two chapters away from Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I imagine that Jesus' view from that mountaintop was the long, hard journey he was preparing to make. I imagine that he was receiving wisdom for that journey. I imagine that Jesus, like all prophets, sees not only the mountain peak, the high place, the place of refuge and safety, but also what's on the other side of the mountain what's in the valleys and all the challenges and the suffering that slide down the slopes into the low places of human life. The wisdom of Moses from the mountaintop clarifies the injustice and the perversions of the law that must be addressed in those places. The wisdom of Elijah fuels the liberating, life-giving power of God that gives courage to speak truth to power and to bring healing love to those who suffer in those places. And ultimately, I imagine that Jesus' view from the mountaintop was a vision not only of the pain and the challenge that he faced, but also of the promise, the dream of God fulfilled the prophesied reality when God's children learn to love as God loves and to serve as God serves, to abolish the old ways of lifting up some to the detriment of others so that all may finally live in dignity and in peace together. When Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain, Jesus learns of the boy suffering from something that, to modern ears anyway, sounds like uh, seizures. And Jesus also learns that the disciples have not given this child any relief. And quite frankly, that sets Jesus off. Saying, in essence, you're still not getting it. Listen, I mean, Jesus had already literally given the disciples authority over unclean spirits, however they understood that in the time. Jesus had sent them out in pairs, two by two, to support one another in this work, but had been given power. They had been given power and authority to do this work. 
They had literally fed thousands of people through the power of God together. And in this moment, in this moment, they are failing to remember that, to believe that, to tap into the power of God, to minister to this child who was right in front of them who was suffering. Perhaps they were focused on the top of the mountain, assuming they could just wait for Jesus to come back down and fix everything. It's no wonder, really, that the women and men who followed Jesus struggled to believe that they were capable or welcomed to participate in God's dream. After all, most of them weren't learned or powerful. They weren't part of the in crowd or perceived as important or worthy of attention. And quite frankly, how many of us tend to think, oh yes, God wants me to be an agent in helping the dream of God to come into being. And yet, Jesus kept preaching and teaching that all of them, that all of us, are beloved of God and worthy. That they had the capacity, that we have the capacity to serve one another like God, to minister to one another like Jesus, to love one another as God has loved us. And that, that that, not the powers or values of this world, are what God desires and honors. Service, love, mutuality. This is what God desires. And it's a message that we need to receive again and again. In the sermon that he preached the night before his assassination, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, it's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and some dresses and some shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and God's children who can't eat three square meals a day. Dr. King understood, of course, the long, hard road that is on the other side of the mountaintop. And he continuously called people of every age, station, gender, and race to remember the equal dignity we are given as children of God. The call that each one of us has received to serve not our own interests, but the needs of others, to put our spirituality down here, working together in nonviolent ways to make our world more like God's dream. The title for the sermon series that we're concluding today comes from a short poem written by Langston Hughes in 1951 entitled Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore 
and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? In his 1967 Christmas Eve sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King spoke of what it looks like when the dream is deferred. He said, quote, in 1963 on a sweltering August afternoon, we stood in Washington, D.C., and I tried to talk to the nation about a dream I had had. And I must confess that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. I remember the first time I saw that dream turn into a nightmare when four beautiful, unoffending, innocent black girls were murdered in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. I watched that dream turn into a nightmare as I moved through the ghettos of the nation and saw my black brothers and sisters perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity and saw the nation doing nothing to grapple with that problem of poverty. I saw that dream turn into a nightmare as I watched my black brothers and sisters in the midst of anger and understandable outrage, in the midst of their hurt, in the midst of their disappointment, turn to misguided riots to try to solve that problem. I saw that dream turn into a nightmare as I watched the war in Vietnam escalating. Yes, he says, I am personally the victim of deferred dreams of blasted hopes. But in spite of that, I still have a dream. Because you know, you can't give up in life. If you lose hope, somehow you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of all. And so today, he said in 1967, I still have a dream. Prophets from Jesus to Dr. King and right up until today are able to perceive not only what is, but what can be through the power of God's grace and love and by the faith and hope that Spirit gives us. In the last words Dr. King preached, he said, quote, we've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And God's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. 
from the mountaintop. Prophets see the promised land. The promised land is the dream of God. And knowing the long, hard road ahead and having experienced the pain of the dream deferred, God's dream took shape in the prophetic imagination of Martin Luther King Jr. this way. He said, I have a dream that one day people will rise up and come to see that they are made to live together as family. I still have a dream that one day every black person in this country and in the world will be judged on the basis of the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And every person will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. I still have a dream that one day the idle industries of Appalachia will be revitalized and the empty stomachs of Mississippi will be filled and kinship will be more than a few words at the end of a prayer, but rather the first order of business on every legislative agenda. I still have a dream today that one day justice will roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I still have a dream today that in all of our state houses and city halls, people will be elected to go there who will do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. I still have a dream today that one day war will come to an end, that people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that nations will no longer rise up against nations, neither shall they study war anymore. I still have a dream today that one day the lamb and the lion will lie down together and every person will sit under their own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. I still have a dream today that one day every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill be made low, the rough places will be made smooth and the crooked places straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I still have a dream that with this faith, we will be able to adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day when there will be peace on earth and goodwill toward all. It will be a glorious day. The morning stars will sing together and the children of God will shout for joy. I wonder whether Jesus' view from the mountaintop includes a vision of all of those people from the beginning of time and all the way through eternity 
who by the love and grace of God hold fast to God's dream, even in the midst of trial, disappointment, fear, tribulation, those who claim their God-given responsibility and privilege to serve, to mend, to love, to set captives free. The promised land is promised. And the promise is the dream fully realized, no longer a dream deferred. We might not live to see it, but it's what helps us to go on in spite of all. May we have the faith and courage of Dr. King and prophets through the ages who can say with assurance, because of God's grace and the faith that has been planted within us, with assurance we might say, we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anyone. For mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. May it be so, my friends. May it be so. Amen.